Hey, it's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army, and uh, welcome to our worship and study time here. Um, we are looking at Matthew chapter 17 today, and as you are finding your way there in your Bible, I'm going to tell you a little story. Grace and peace to each and every one of you, by the way. Now, before Jesus called him to follow, Matthew was a tax collector, and tax collectors were not popular fellows. Back uh, in the day, uh, Rome would hire these guys uh, by selling a tax franchise, and then these guys would go out and collect all the taxes they were allowed to. Sometimes they would collect a little more, and even when they only collected what they were allowed to, a lot of times they were allowed to collect a lot more than people were comfortable paying. Go figure. Especially considering that Rome took those taxes and used them to support the legionnaires and the, uh, the military oppression of the area that they were in. Remember, Rome had invaded Judea and kept it under a pretty tight set of screws while the, uh, they were in charge there. Um, so you can see tax collectors, not particularly popular. In fact, they were often considered traitors by their own people because the tax collectors would be folks from the area because who better to hire to collect taxes than someone who actually knows if someone like a neighbor actually owed those taxes. So if you were a tax collector, there were two things about you that were almost certainly true. One, you were almost certainly very wealthy. And two, you were almost certainly very wealthy because you were taking money from the people around you, your your neighbors, your friends, your family even. Now, Rome wasn't the only government taking taxes in this area at the time. Uh, there also were uh, taxes being collected by King Herod, uh, whichever of the Herods it was. They all collected taxes, and Herod the Great in particular had this uh, fantastic plan where he was going to rebuild everything in his own grandiose image. And um, in order to do that, he needed to find money. And he, where does a king find money? A king finds money by taxing his citizens. And some of that is completely honest and fair in that the citizens pay taxes to their king because the king supports and, and governs them. And that's all great, right? <laughs> Um, we'll talk about that a little more later, but it's all it's all good, right? It's it's a fair thing. You you pay people for their job that they do, and a, a king ruling over you is a big job, and they have things they need to do, and they have to be able to pay for them, and this is the way that kings do it. They tax their citizenry. But Herod, again, was building monuments to himself, essentially. Um, he sometimes said that they were to the Roman emperor or other people who were important, but ultimately they were all to himself. And the same was true of all of the other Herods who came along and they built their own little things that were big things and cost a lot of money too. So any money that was being collected by the Herods and all the money that was being collected by the Romans and you put all that together and people felt like they didn't have any breathing room because everything they earned was being collected in taxes. And there was even one more tax besides the civil taxes. And it was a tax that had started some 1,500 years earlier during the time of the exodus from Egypt. It was an amount that was to be paid by all Israelites. And the specific coin that was to be used to pay it was actually specified, laid out by its exact type and weight. In Exodus chapter 30, 
uh, I know I told you Matthew 17 today, but that's all right. In Exodus chapter 30, you flip back and forth here. Uh, Exodus 30 at verse 14, we're told that all who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. See, so this tax, even now, centuries later, 1500 years later, in the time of Jesus, this tax from the time of Moses was still being collected every year to pay for the activities of the temple. So it was originally the tent of meeting, and then as they built the temple, that replaced that. And so the tax just moved over to support the other location. <clears throat> Excuse me. So every year on the 1st of Adar, <coughs> I, I love months and telling you the names of months that you've never heard of. So on the Jewish calendar, the month of Adar happens in a time of year kind of around the time we call March. And uh, the reason that I am a little vague about that is that we use different calendars. We use a solar calendar. And the old, the ancient Israelites, they used uh, a lunar calendar. So there are a different number of months and different number of days in the months. And they tend to shift around a little bit, which accounts for why certain holidays on our calendar, like Easter, move to different places on the calendar every year. <laughs> Things you probably don't really need to know. So every year on the 1st of Adar, this uh, month that happens most years around the time we call March, a reminder got put out so the people could have time to make sure that they had the sanctuary accepted coin, uh, a half shekel coin, to give for each person. And beginning on the 15th of Adar, collecting booths would go out across the land so people could pay their tax. By the 25th of Adar, tables would be set up in the temple itself, and they would remain there until it was time for the festival of Sukkot in Jerusalem when the coins collected would be brought to the great storehouse there. Now I was curious about these coins they used and how they made sure they were the right kind and weight that was specified by God back if you go back to that Exodus chapter I read from, you'll see that God actually specifies the specific size and weight of the the coin that needs to pay for each person. And it wasn't that that one coin was the only one. It was okay to use a larger denomination coin, but there was a, a weight and value of the silver that needed to exist. And I discovered that actually this had always kind of been a challenge to them. See, different cities made different sizes and styles of coins. And sometimes they used different amounts of silver. And sometimes people would scrape precious metal off the edges of the coins and, you know, kind of shave them down. But for a little over 150 years, by the time of Jesus, there had been a standard coin which was being used, which was very popular because it had an assured quality of construction and it had raised edges that kept it from being shaved without being noticeable. This was the Tyrian shekel. It was uh, minted in the pagan city of Tyre, just outside of Israel. Uh, we've heard that name before, haven't we? Uh, and it was not a coin that Israelites ordinarily would use, frankly. The, the head stamped on it was that of the Phoenician god Melkart, who the Greeks called Hercules. He was the patron deity of Tyre. And on the back was the graven image of an eagle 
which is another picture the Israelites would have found offensive, because the Ten Commandments stated very clearly they were not to make any graven images. The leaders of the day were very practical about money, though. They felt it was preferable to use these particular coins, which were minted to the right weight and purity that God had asked for. They felt it was more important to make that agreement, to make that requirement, uh, than it was to require people to use a coin that didn't have these offending images. Not just everyone could make a coin. So you kind of had to go with what you could get. But foreign gods and graven images made this kind of an unpopular tax. And for the last 30 or more years, several of the sects of Judaism had found themselves objecting to paying this tax. One group who tried to distance themselves from the world and who believed that the temple had been corrupted by the meddling of the Romans and the Herods, they'd even reached the point where they would pay this tax one time in their lives and would refuse to pay it from that point on. And others objected for other reasons, but then they also rejected this tax. They said, oh, it's not legitimate any longer, or, or you're requiring us to use this coin that we don't touch. And so a number of people just didn't pay this. And somehow this requirement that all Israelites pay eroded away. And since neither the Herods nor the Romans received any of the money collected, they stopped enforcing the rule. It was never really on them in the first place. It was always kind of the temple leaders who, who made sure that people paid this temple tax. Now, honestly, most people still paid it. They considered it a point of religious pride that they paid this. But it's really not a surprise that some people came to wonder whether Jesus would support the temple in this area or not. And Matthew, getting back to Matthew, Matthew had a special interest in how his new master felt about taxes and about those who collected them. And so Matthew made a point of including details about this interest in his biography of Jesus, which if you have turned to Matthew chapter 17 and you find your way down to verse 24, you will see Matthew tells this story. It starts here, verse 24. <clears throat> After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, two drachma, that's a half shekel, or about two full days wages for a common laborer, in case you were curious. Not a huge amount, but it would be a notable expense. Now, frankly, by the time Matthew recorded this episode, he wrote this down much later. Now, he didn't write it down as it was happening. He wrote it down, you know, a couple of decades, four or five decades, possibly even, uh, later than, than uh, it had occurred. Um, by the time Matthew recorded this, there was no temple left to support. The temple had been destroyed in the year 70 uh, of the common era, 70 AD, by the Romans um, when they responded to a Jewish revolt in Judea. And they took apart the temple so that not one stone was left on another. <laughs> they pretty much did that to all of Jerusalem, frankly. Now, the point of Matthew including this story wasn't to establish a need to either pay or refuse to pay this particular tax, because it didn't exist anymore when he wrote it down. So what he's doing here is trying to make a far more important statement. 
which we are going to have to untangle and figure out what he is, why he is bringing this in. Why does he think this is important? So we need to see how Peter answers this question about whether Jesus pays the tax. In verse 25, yes, he does, he replied. (laughs) Well, seems simple enough. But Peter is known for speaking without thinking, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't really know the answer here. So he could be creating an awkward situation for Jesus by saying yes. I don't think he's had a chance to see Jesus pay or reject this particular fee. See, generally, you paid this in your home area, but observant Jews didn't handle money on the Sabbath. And the only time Jesus seems to have been in Capernaum during the tax period of the previous year was on the Sabbath. Because he was out traveling the rest of the time. But Peter might have just been trying to, uh, you know, get by the table. You know, like you do when people are trying to get you to sign those petitions outside of grocery stores, and you're just like, ah, I gotta go today, I can't, sorry, I can't stop. After all, Peter, he'd, he'd kind of been involved in this thing. Yeah, he and the other apostles had been having a little discussion on their way back into town. Kind of an argument, actually. They were debating which one of them was the greatest. They'd tried to keep it down, but... He was pretty sure Jesus had heard, and it was all kind of embarrassing. Now, Matthew doesn't record that argument, but Mark does, and so does Luke. And actually, we're going to see how that argument turns out next week, because Matthew does record that. However, for now, it is enough to know that Peter might have been distracted, and maybe just threw out an answer that he thought was going to be the right one, even though he shouldn't have spoken to something he didn't really know, right? Here's the weird thing, though. Forgive me. By the time Peter got to the house where they were all staying, Jesus already seemed to know all about this. Look at this rest of uh, verse 25 here. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? Remember, Simon was Peter's real name. Peter's what we write in place of his nickname. His nickname was Rocky. Now, I I don't think that this is quite like my mom calling me by my whole name when I was in trouble, but I'm willing to bet that it immediately got his attention that Jesus is putting him on the spot using his real name. What do you think, Simon? Do kings tax their own kids or do they tax other people? Verse 26, from others, Peter answered. Well, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. All right, so you've got to think this through. Taxes are monies paid to the king or government because it is owed to them in exchange for the leadership and the guidance they give. We may not always agree with what they do with the money, but that doesn't change our obligation to pay. And it is an obligation, which is why people go to prison when they don't pay. I saw this week that Spain is trying to lock Shakira up for eight years for tax evasion because they think she hasn't paid enough taxes on her her music over the years. It's crazy, right? If they want to lock her up for anything, it should be that Waka Waka song from the World Cup or maybe that Super Bowl halftime show with J-Lo. But taxes? But taxes are an obligation owed to the king. And we need to pay what we owe, right? But... There's an awkward truth that children don't really owe anything to their parents. There are some things a child should do, right? Because it's their duty and there's some that they should do out of respect for the people who raised them or out of a sense of family. 
but they don't owe anything. We don't do things for our kids so that we can hook them with an obligation. We don't care about our kids so that we can demand taxes from them. And I know there are some parents out there who make some not so great choices and use some guilt or other pressure tactics to try to manipulate their kids into doing things for them, which first of all, that is not right. And secondly, even though they do that, it doesn't actually create any real legal or moral obligation. Kids don't owe their parents. Kings don't tax their children. The child of a king didn't get taxes. They reaped the benefit of the king receiving taxes from others. Like Jesus said, the children are exempt. So, what is he saying when he says that? Well, he's saying that he doesn't need to pay the tax that Peter was asked about. In fact, by extension, Jesus is saying that his followers don't have to pay that tax either. Hmm, stay with me for a moment. God established this tax. Jesus has said that he is, and has been confirmed by earthly and heavenly signs to be, the Son of God. He, he has declared his followers to be his family, his brothers and sisters. He's saying that he is exempt, and so are we. He's saying we don't owe God anything. Oh, oh, that sounds dangerous, doesn't it? We don't owe God anything. Now, there are things we should do out of duty. There are some that we should do out of respect or gratitude, and some because we love, love being a choice to put the priorities of the other ahead of our own ideas, but we don't owe God. How could I say that? It seems like, it feels like heresy, doesn't it? Well, I can say that we don't owe God because God himself tells us over and over and over that what we have from him is grace. And that word that is translated as grace, it is a word that means gift, not obligation. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. See, we haven't earned anything from God. He's not taxing us. And you cannot and do not require salvation to be given to you because of what you are obligated to pay. There is no obligation. There is no tax here. There is just grace, which you either accept or walk away from, just like every other gift. Because the grace you have been offered makes you exempt. A child of the king owes no taxes to the king. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But Jesus is not done with what he's teaching Peter. Look at verse 27. So Jesus says that the children are exempt, and then he goes on to say this. But, see, there's the but. But, so that we may not cause offense. Go to the lake, throw out your line. Take the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. He doesn't say that. That's our translation. He says you'll find a stater. A stater was a coin that was worth four drachma. 
uh, stator is that Tyrian shekel that we are talking about, by the way. Open its mouth and you'll find a stator. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. All right, all right. So wait, wait a sec. We're exempt, but we should pay anyway. And what's with the whole fish thing? Why not just grab a shekel out of the money bag and pay the tax and be done with it? Well, again, Matthew is trying to show us there's more at play here than just the surface things. So that he won't offend or disillusion anyone who might still hear his message and accept it, Jesus will humbly accept that they want him to pay this, even though he doesn't owe it. Think, think about that for a second. I mean, that, that's going to be tough because it kind of sets our American teeth on edge, right? Pay something we don't owe? That's not really, like, part of our culture, is it? Jesus, though, he's willing to surrender his rights and privileges just to reach out. He says we should be willing to step up and do the same thing. Now, how do I get to there from, from this? Well, because he tells Peter to do the same, to pay the tax. He says, take this coin and pay my tax and yours. We don't owe it, but we will pay it. And getting that coin from the mouth of the fish, that's Jesus showing what it can mean to live out what he's been teaching. Jesus keeps telling all of his followers that they should rely on God to meet their needs. He tells all of us we should rely on God to meet our needs. And he's not just talking about spiritual needs. He means the physical ones too. Fully rely on God for all things. By the way, notice that the fish producing a coin is not Jesus doing a miracle. It is Jesus predicting that God will provide even in a miraculous way. He's pointing us to placing our trust in the king. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the followers of Jesus to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Why? Because he says this was the mindset that Jesus had. In uh, Philippians 2 at verse 6, he says, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus certainly didn't owe God anything. But in love, looking to the interests of God over his own, he embraced humility and did the will of God. He paid a price he didn't owe. He paid a tax that didn't apply to him. And we reap the benefits of that, don't we? Now, I give Peter a lot of crap for being kind of a knucklehead. But the truth is, he's not so different from most of us, is he? And he really did get it eventually. In the first letter that bears his name that we have in the New Testament, he, he writes that we should care for others, not because you must, but because you are willing. It's not about what is owed it's about what is possible when we live out humility instead of demanding our rights what were the disciples arguing about on their way back to Capernaum who was the greatest what has Jesus just showed them how to serve 
we don't owe God anything. By his grace, you and I are children of the king. We are exempt. But we can choose to live as children who care about the will of their father. We can choose to act as agents of the king. Do you get it? Will you try it? Just throw out your line. God will send you everything you need to do his will. God will send you everything you need to do his will. If you choose to. If you choose to do his will. You got to make that choice. It all comes down to the decision you make, the decision I make. And the things that we can do together as agents in the kingdom of God are always a miracle. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of Jesus in our lives. Thank you that you do consider us your children and that as your children, we don't owe you anything. As uncomfortable as it is to phrase it in that way, because Lord, you have given us so much. How can I not owe you for that? But that's the gift, isn't it? That's grace. Thank you so much for your grace. Help us learn to live in your grace, to inhabit your grace, to understand your grace so that we can extend your grace to those around us. Show us how to do that. Thank you that in the life of Jesus, you did show us how to do that. But as we go through our life this week, this month, this year, for the rest of our lives, Help us to embody that grace. Help us to be grateful for what we've been given and share it with those that we can. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, wherever you go this week, wherever you are, remember, you have nothing to fear. God is already there. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you. Have a great week.